I can't recall when it was, but, but I, I said, Jordan, can't it be that if I know that it's the case that they're coming in, bringing me lunch in order to try to make me prescribe more, then can't I just know that that's true and then guard against it? And what was your answer? That you're human. <laughs> <laughs> that you're a human being and, and that humans are wired in a way that we can't discard against it. It's, it's the rule of reciprocation. It exists in all cultures. It overcomes all dislikes. And this is something in the psychological community that's been studied exhaustively. That mm. if you get a gift, no matter, what the mo- no matter how small it is, it doesn't even have to be expensive that when we get a gift, we feel the need to reciprocate. And mm. that is something we can't control. And, and one of the things I'll push back on you again, Chris, is, um, is that, is it really a gift? Mm. We view them as gifts, but is it really a gift? The definition of gift is something voluntary transferred from one person to another without compensation. Let me read you another definition. (laughs) Money or favor given or promised in order to influence judgment or conduct of a person in a position of trust. Do these things we get from industry sound more like a gift or this definition? Hmm. And that second definition is the definition of bribe. Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today's conversation was with Dr. Jordan Key. And for starters, Jordan is the creator of probably the most eye-opening CME lecture I have ever been to called Why Lunch Matters. If you want to bring an engaging speaker to your state, I highly recommend Dr. Jordan Key. That lecture is the primary basis for our discussion on this episode. To provide some background, Jordan and I cut our teeth lecturing by helping students prepare for their board examinations. I've had a considerable amount of consternation about how and when I would put this podcast out on the feed. The reason will become apparent as you listen, but I want to be exceedingly clear that the content of our conversation is not intended to blackball any of our colleagues, and it is certainly not to badmouth industry. For starters, I want to clearly state there is a synergy between the tools that industry develops and how we integrate those instruments and treatments into our clinical practice. And I believe that this synergy allows for clinicians to evaluate the evidence behind new technologies more rapidly than if it didn't exist. Additionally, I want to point out that all the studies that Jordan points to deal with medicine. And while a profession can learn from medicine on these topics, they are clearly the ones who have been the bad actors based on the studies which will be cited in the show notes. My take home from this conversation is that we should have a heightened level of scrutiny of those in our profession and others who deliver continuing medical education. We should ask not simply if they have industry ties, but how much do those industry ties mean? Are they related to advisory boards, stock options, speakers bureaus? We should get very familiar with open payments data and be ready to arm ourselves with this information when needed. I have posted information about my open payments data, as well as my counterpart, Ted McElroy's, on the feed of this podcast. You can also use these links to search for your favorite lecturers to see the details of their relationships with industry. Please enjoy our conversation. And as always, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you find the information valuable, share it with your friends and colleagues. I don't know if I've told you this, but... Probably, as I think back over the years, these, the lectures that I can remember enjoying the most and learning the most, Why Lunch Matters was kind of um, eye-opening for me. It, it was probably wow. the best lecture I've ever heard um, because it was so drastically different than what we come to expect from continuing education lectures. Yeah. Uh, you know, you deliver it very well. Um, the content is... From my understanding, I know you. I know that we all have mentors and people that kind of push us in different directions. But you know, it's your it's your stuff. And and I think when you think about kind of recharging your batteries and maybe um, kind of the things that you'd want to do, I would just encourage you in general to do more of that. It doesn't have to be why lunch matters, but do more of that. Like figure out what you like yeah. 
and then just dig deep into it. And that, that's what always keeps me recharged. But, oh, but yeah. let, me, let me think about, so why lunch matters? Um, tell me about that. Tell our listeners about that. Well, I, I think one way to start this potentially could be um, to talk about my journey as to why this even is something I started digging into. Yeah. And so um, I remember going to optometry school, and I, and I think this is pretty typical for most optometry students across the country, arriving, and the first day there was a gift waiting for us in the lecture hall. There was a company with their their logo emblazoned on it. We all got a bag or something. I don't even remember what type of bag it was, but I remember thinking, wow, I've made it. This <laughs> is big time. Like how sweet, like didn't get these in undergrad. And, and, and that gift giving from industry just kept growing bigger and bigger throughout the years of school to lunches and then pretty big expensive dinners at pretty expensive places towards the end of graduation. And each year it happened, I remember thinking, this is awesome. You know, you're working hard, you don't have a lot of money. It was, a, it was flattering. You thought that they, that they really thought a lot about you. And um, it was a great feeling. I mean, who doesn't like to get free dinners and free gifts and free stuff? And it wasn't until residency when showing up and um, I, my residency was at the Kansas City VA, as you know, and Tim mm-hmm. Harkins made us read not only eye disease, but he made us read information about how to dress, how to talk to patients, what words to use, which words not to use. And one of the things that we read about was the conflict of interest when accepting gifts from industry. And I remember reading about it and just being completely blindsided. I felt mm-hmm. like, I felt like, it was so startling and so uncomfortable that I remember thinking this stuff has to be wrong. Like this, mm. this has to be something that that isn't true or otherwise I, I would have heard this somewhere else. Yeah. And, and I remember calling a friend of mine who was going to Georgetown medical school at the time. And I said, I really read some, some stuff that that's really shaking me and it's made me question things. And, and um, after talking with him, he said, oh, yeah, first day on campus, first week of med school, we were taught about interactions that are appropriate and not appropriate with industry. And, and there's no drug reps on campus. We're not, there's no samples in our hospital. And, and all these, these things that I had grown used to and really enjoyed and liked were just not present. And it was very clear up front to, the, to his class and him that that's not a way you should, that, that, that interacting with industry is appropriate. And so, after doing that and, and going to ICO, I started teaching this to the residents at ICO when I was on faculty there and word got out that I was interested in ethics and I was given the ethics curriculum at ICO. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll tackle this. And I really dug into it. I taught at the third year students. I turned it into a CE lecture. I actually contacted Adrian Few Berman at Georgetown Medical School. She runs an organization called farmedout.org. And her entire budget is originally funded by the U.S. Attorney General Hmm. um, that's based off of false marketing from industry that's given to her to educate medical students and medical professionals about the relationships we should be having with industry. And she really opened my eyes to things. And she, she holds a conference every year to invite medical doctors, residents, students in to, to hear um, unbiased CE, as she says. Hmm. And, and so I created, um, with her permission, a CE topic called Why Lunch Matters using some of her slides and then adding things to make it more appropriate to, to optometry. And I've been doing it for about eight, nine years now and um, numerous states. And the biggest thing about Why Lunch Matters is, is that the difference in roles that we have industry versus physician and that one of the things that's worth saying up front is that um that patient care really relies on the expertise of of us and industry together and and 
industry and physicians um, and, and all kinds of specialties together, we've made huge advancements and achievements in the health of people. And there are diseases that used to kill people that now don't. There are diseases that used to blind people, now they don't. And that's because of industry and, and physicians and, and um, working together to achieve these things. However, when it, when it boils down to it, um, our role as physicians is to make decisions that are in the best interest of our patients. When it mm -hmm. boils down to it, um, in our oath, it says that that's our job and that we will do it even without accepting, you know, without worrying about financial um, payment. And in industries at the core, their, um, their role is to their shareholders. If, when they're publicly held companies, they're making decisions in the best, um, the best for their shareholders. And that's where the conflict of interest arises. And these scientists and engineers create incredible devices and incredible drugs. And then they're turned over to multi-million, sometimes billion dollar marketing campaigns. And that marketing is driven directly at us because their livelihood in, in a lot of ways largely depends on us prescribing and using their instruments. And so if, if their marketing can influence us just a little bit, it makes a profound difference on their bottom line and to their shareholders. So, so give me an example of, of maybe an example you use during the topic of, you know, I, as I recall either maybe it's statins, maybe it's um, pain medications, you know, give me an example of how this, how this actually works and, and what you'd want to be aware of and, and, you know, those sorts of things. Are you talking about how they sometimes spin statistics to make us feel right. like it's better? So there, there actually is a commercial commonly on TV right now. I don't know the name of it. It's probably good <laughs> I don't say the name of it, to be honest. <laughs> And, um, but it, there's, there's a, it says something like this, 98% of people on this medication did not have a stroke or heart attack while on this drug. Hmm. And on the small print on the bottom of the screen, I remember I saw this and I said, that sounds fishy. That yeah. statement, there, there's something that there's hidden there. I paused it and I walked up to the screen and in small print on the bottom, it says, 97.5% of people Ugh. did not have a heart attack or a stroke while on just aspirin alone. Wow. So the benefit of that drug was point a half percent. A half percent. Yep. And, but boy, 98% on their drug sounds wow. pretty impressive. And, and so one of the things that's really eye-opening about marketing uh, um, from some of these industries and, and, um, is that if, you, if you're not a little savvy with your statistics and you're not a little cynical or skeptical is probably the right word of, mm -hmm. of what you're hearing from industry is there, there really needs to be a little bit of a sniff test when you hear things from, from industry. And, and that's one thing I've learned through this is when I hear it from industry, it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad information. In fact, a lot of the information they give is good information, but it needs to be taken with a grain of salt and a little due diligence to dig into those stats and see exactly what, what they're referring to. In your, in your research, when, when you look, and maybe this, a lot of this comes from the Georgetown um, kind of program that they have, but um, it, physicians in general, how many of them are doing that due diligence? What, what would your perspective be? Do you have any numbers on that? No. And, and one of the things that, that I think is worth saying, again, kind of at the beginning of this conversation, is how hard, hard, of, an, how hard of an assignment it is to oh. hear some of these things that you and I will probably talk about. And, and it's because we have to confront a circumstance that almost all of us have participated in the past and that, and that seems really benign. And when we've participated in the past, it becomes really hard to confront because we feel the need to defend our earlier actions. And so I think that percentage is probably pretty low. And, and I just think that's why I'm really glad that you're, you're having me on and we're doing this because I think it's a conversation that just needs to be had. And as uncomfortable as it might be, it, it needs to be said. So tell me um, when... So one of the things that I recall you going into is um, this idea that when 
let's say a, a drug company brings in lunch, for example, um, they know exactly what Jordan Keith likes to eat. They know <laughs> what time he likes to take his That's lunch. Um, and when they know that, what is, what do they, what do they intuitively know that you subconsciously will do, um, in response to that? So one of the things about representatives for these companies, again, I, I, I don't want to sound all negative. Um, people you do, but that's okay. Yeah. (laughs) And and that, that, that's the hard part about talking about something that has impact on patient care is sometimes I get really passionate about it. And, and, but, um, if you really boil down what a drug rep's job is, it is to get you to prescribe or use their product more. Right. And, and so one of the things that was really interesting about digging into some of this is they train their representatives to get to know your personality. They train them to, to get to know your staff. They train them to find what you like and what you don't like. And, and that's their job. And a lot of their backgrounds aren't in science. It's in marketing and sales. And, and there's no surprise that a lot of them also look a certain way. Um, that there's, hmm. their, 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 their job is to influence you. And um, they know exactly how much they influence you. One of the things that's no secret is that um, pharmaceutical companies and industry, specifically pharmaceutical companies, though, because we're prescribing drugs, that's all tracked by health information organizations, the largest of which is IMS. And that has grown into a multi-billion dollar industry because they collect all what physicians prescribe and that data is sold to industry. Mm. And those industries then have the data you and I prescribe on their handheld devices when they walk in. And so when they ask you, have you, how's this been working? How's this been going? They can look and say, well, Chris Wolf hasn't been prescribing this as much as I like him to. And, um, they're trained to find out what things they, to say and what things to do to make that number go up. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you're, if you're a, if your retirement's an X company and, and they're on the stock market, you don't want them just throwing money at representatives that aren't going to get in return. They know exactly how often they should come back, when they should come in and detail you, whether food works, whether it doesn't work, maybe this food's better. Maybe Chris likes that better. And so it's really well-oiled, tailored type evidence-based amount of targeting that they use. And there's some studies um, they have done themselves internally where they know exactly how many minutes they should spend with you to get a return. And hmm. too little and, or too much can be harmful. So um, the first time I read those things and, and saw those, again, it made me view them so much differently where before they used to be friends and I thought we were friends and, and and it's, and maybe that's just the naivety of me, but I think a lot of us come out of school and we, we get to know a rep or something and we, we feel like, man, they're really nice to me. And, and the reality is their job is to get you to use their products more. Mm -hmm. So then, um, okay. So you and I talked about this and and I pushed back a little bit on you. Uh, You know, I think we were, I think we're in Minnesota and we were either having dinner or um, I can't recall when it was, but, but I, I said, Jordan, can't it be that if I know that it's the case that they're coming in, bringing me lunch in order to try to make me prescribe more, then can't I just know that that's true and then guard against it? And what was your answer? That you're human. <laughs> <laughs> That you're a human being and, and that humans are wired in a way that we can't discard against it. It's, it's the rule of reciprocation. It exists in all cultures. It overcomes all dislikes. And this is something in the psychological community that's been studied exhaustively. That mm. if you get a gift, no matter, what the mo- no matter how small it is, it doesn't even have to be expensive, that when we get a gift, we feel the need to reciprocate and mm-hmm. that is something we can't control. And, and one of the things I'll push back on you again, Chris, is, um, is that, is it really a gift? Mm. We view them as gifts. 
but is it really a gift? The definition of gift is something voluntary transferred from one person to another without compensation. Let me read you another definition. <laughs> Money or favor given or promised in order to influence judgment or conduct of a person in a position of trust. Do these things we get from industry sound more like a gift or this definition? Hmm. And that second definition is the definition of bribe. I just, one of the things that's changed a lot about just getting into this and thinking about it and reading about it. And, and it's been studied so exhaustively in medicine that, that I view them as a bribe now. And I, and mm. I, and, and that's why it's, it makes it much less satisfying to accept those things because I, I, it's not a gift. It's, it's trying to influence me in some way. And, and, and the evidence is pretty clear that we can't combat that. Mm. So I'll, again, I'm playing it devil's advocate, but, you know, are, is it the case that, I mean, I guess, are there some times where when you, let me, let me go a different, a different direction. When you present this topic to states to discuss of all the things that you can, that you can present on, um, is this a common one that they're asking you to present on? Are they shying it away from, are they shying away from it because of other you know, vendors that might be at those meetings? What, what's been your experience? It, it, it's been an interesting experience. Hmm. Um, you talk at meetings and states and, <laughs> and, 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 and you know, and, and I, as the current chair of the education committee in the Minnesota Optometric Association, um, it's, if you're in this seat, you, you, you want to find good speakers and, yep. and you want the speakers to speak on things they're passionate about. So when, when states reach out to me and they ask, oh, what are you interested in? Um, I always tell them, you know, there's lots of dry eye talks and there's people that probably do it way better than I do. And, and I tell them, I got two talks that are way different than anything you've probably heard before. And, and something that is really compelling and something that captivates people's attention when I give it why lunch matters. And I have another one called know your chances, which talks a lot about the stats that you mentioned mm -hmm. a minute ago. And, and so a lot of these, a lot of them are like, great, glad to have something new. And I would say 90% of the time I do this talk, it's embraced well. Most people in the audience come up to me and say, this is incredible. This is something that needs to be discussed more. I see it too. This needs to go to the AOA. You should submit this to optometry's meeting. And 10% of people are really taken aback by this. And, and, I, and I get pushed back and, and, mm. and, I, and I, I don't even take it personally at all because, because I felt completely blindsided the first time I had it. I, I tread really lightly when I give this to the audience and, and warm them up to it. Because it, if you haven't thought about this before and you've been participating in this for years, it's really uncomfortable to hear that, you know, something you've been doing might potentially be affecting patient care or irrationally making you prescribe things that maybe you shouldn't. I do have one instance, though, that topped it. And, and I'm, I'm not going to name a state, and I'm going to leave this really mm -hmm. vague, but one of the things that's been really interesting about being in my role as the chair of the education committee and asking people to speak and then also going to other states is, um, within the last nine years of doing this, I had one state accept this. Hmm. And then it wasn't long before the meeting, about a month before, after everything was published and the course description went out, that I got an email from my position of a chair from this state saying, we are getting pushback from industry. They hmm. want us to pull your talk. Hmm. The executive director wants you to pick something else. Wow. And right there, that was the moment that I said, them not wanting me to do this is the precise reason why this needs to happen. Yeah. That's exactly why this talk should be had at every state and at every level and why we need to start having conversations. And the only reason I knew this was because I was chair of our state committee. And I, 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 I I calmly kind of said, this is really late. Are you sure? And they said, yes. And then I sent them back the COPE standards for commercial support to ensure independence in CE mm. activities. 
which clearly states industry shall not and cannot have any influence on what's being taught. Mm-hmm. And I eventually gave it and things went fine. But, but that was a big moment for me that <laughs> there, th- this is not an easy position to take. I, I am in the minority of doctors for sure. And I think it's largely because, again, I don't think, just don't think people thought about it. It's, but, but that was a moment for me that just made me think, this is a, I need to keep doing this. People need to hear this message. And this is something that, that we need to have more conversations about. I think if people knew that industry had influence on what we hear at our meetings, I, I don't think the average listener or, or, or member would, sit, would think that's acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's there's two things. I mean, one, um, certainly having having you on the podcast and talking about this, um, you know, potentially uh, is is. I mean, I think the whole idea is to open up people's eyes to to this stuff. I would push back again on you and say I I, I am not convinced that you know you you highlight uh, medicine as being way out in front of this, but. You know, when I look at, at um, you know, ophthalmology journals, just like I, I look at optometry journals, I, I see the same stuff going on there, um, like it goes on uh, with us. And, and, you know, dentistry, I've talked to friends in dentistry, podiatry, they're, they're very similar. But I think maybe because they have the resources to do the research and to, you know, the, the would you say it was the attorney general that was funding some of this stuff because yeah. of the money that they've collected from bad actors. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that, that, that they're probably on the forefront because they've got those resources. And so we need a maven um, like you to be able to kind of highlight that. And so um, my, I think my biggest concern, Jordan, and maybe it's misplaced, but uh, let me throw this out at you is I think um, I still would contend that understanding that, um, that there is probably some um, uh, your word bribe that that may occur when having lunch or dinner, etc. Um, I actually don't think that's as big of an issue as some other issues. And and so let me let me pose this scenario to you. Um, I'm speaking in a state. And um, I go to an additional dinner meeting in that state. And we'll we'll leave the state uh, unnamed, but it was this fall. And, um, and so I, I go to an additional meeting. Uh, I know some docs that are going to that meeting and the, uh, it's, it's being hosted by a company, which will remain nameless. And they had a speaker who was also speaking at the state association meeting um, on the following day. And so they, they had him coming in. And the first thing he said was, I don't typically do this type of talk, but when I found this product, I really wanted to talk about it with you. And that's how he opened up his dinner meeting, which was not COPE approved, which was not, you know, encompassing. It was, it was an advertorial. And, you know, everybody knows that there for the most part, you're there to have a good meal, have fun with people that you know, talk to them, et cetera. But I immediately looked him up on open, open payments. payments. Yeah. yeah. And, and I find out that he had made in the prior year for the company he never does this for, he made about $150,000. And to me, um, I mean, I, I know that your issue deals with the relationship between, you know, between the, the doctor and, and the pharmaceutical company or industry. We're saying pharmaceutical company, but it could be any, any industry, yep. right? Um, and uh, I think that the thing that is actually more egregious is the the lecturer that comes out and, and does those types of things. And then his disclosure says, you know, this company, but it doesn't specifically say the $150,000 from that company. That means more, you know, if, if it's, if it's the case that, you know, it was a, and I don't know what the number is, right? Like, is it a thousand dollars? Is it $10,000? Is it $500? Is it $20? But I would imagine that, you know, if Jordan comes out and speaks for a company and makes $5,000, speaking of that company, it means something different than if you made $50,000 or $500,000 for that, from that company or companies, right? So what's your perspective on that? I, I think that people would be, I, I don't think many people know that as of 20, 2010, as part of the Affordable Care Act, the Physician Sunshine Payment Act 
requires industry to report to CMS exactly how much money they pay physicians. And I, I and by the way, it is a, an incredible website. I think people would be shocked that if so. Would they Google? What would they Google? Open payments. Open payments data. CMS.gov. Okay. And on that website, you can type in any physician, including optometrists, and you can see the exact dollar amount they have accepted from industry. I, I think people would be really surprised to see that in 2018, $9.35 billion were spent on doctors by industry. And a lot of that money is on what is called thought leaders, which is who you were talking about. Um, thought leaders is what they call them. And these are, these are big names in the profession that have a lot of pull. And it's supposed to be designed as education and look like education, but it can't be COPE approved because of guidelines. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of doctors, I think, go in there thinking it's education and, 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 and leave their with a mindset that leads to irrational prescribing. And I know this because this has been studied over mm -hmm. and over again, and this is the exact reason why there's so much talk to try to limit or, or um, even get rid of these types of interactions. And, and I think we can all agree that those types of settings can be really educational. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, it, but to your point, I totally agree that what's being pushed for right now is you can't just say on your first slide, I sometimes interact with industry yep. or a five second blurb. There is, is that a, being pushed for? Are they, are they pushing a, to make it more? As uh, you, who's who's going to push back on that? <laughs> the, the thought leaders? Well, well <laughs> the... Because Jordan, by the way, I think you are a thought leader. Um, I think there's some magazines that have put you up there in the past at least. Yeah. Well, I... I, I What's really hard about this and, uh, is a lot of these people are my friends. And, and I speak and you speak and a lot of these people do these types of things. And I think they're really ethical people. Yeah, and, totally, I, totally. And, I, and I just think there is an ethical question that, they, that needs to be confronted that they're ignoring. And um, I think that if, if, if speakers like that were forced to put the exact dollar amount on that opening slide, that, that would change the 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 thinking of everyone in the audience and and one thing that i'll say to that is a lot of times people go in saying well i went just because there's a free dinner hmm. and i have to i have to push back and say well is the lunch really free right in the end our patients pay for it because the price of those drugs in part takes into account the cost of the advertisement that's built into the cost of that drug and a lot of times People say, well, the drugs are expensive because it costs so much to bring in the market. And it, and it totally does. It's a really expensive to go through research and development. But these are all publicly traded companies. You can go onto their, their books right now and you'll see that these, these pharmaceutical companies, and, and they spend two to three times more in marketing than they do in research and development. Mm. So a lot of what makes those drugs expensive for our patients is in part the marketing directly to us and, and accepting that quote free meal is one of the reasons that those drugs are so expensive. And so I, I the last thing I'll say to that is the meals aren't free. Someone's paying for them. And the last thing is, is it education? I think they can be educational, but is it education when one of the quotes that I love from a podcast that talked about this, and if anyone wants a really good podcast that, by the way, you need to sit down and just brace yourself because when you hear medicine talk about this, it's even more up in your face. Mark, yeah. Mark Chrislip um, has a website called Science-Based uh, Medicine. And in 2010, he did a podcast called Bought and Sold, Who Should Pay for CME? Continuing Medical Education in 2010. And one of the things that he said in there that made me just be like, whoa, he said, in the point of is it education, he said, when Consumer Reports discusses cars, it is education. When Chrysler discusses cars, it is an advertisement. Hmm even when they have Dale Earhart Jr. as the discussant. 
And so if that talk is paid for by someone representing that company, I think we have to ask ourselves, how much is it really an education? How much is it an advertisement? Mm-hmm. Do you, th- okay, so what's the path forward? Let's say you arm yourself as a, as a clinician. So I, I guess I'm not, so one of the things since you, since I saw your talk for the very first time, I, I really wrap, try to wrap my mind around this to say, is there, and, and you, you know, I think you're hearing me, you know, over the years try to say, is there a happy medium between, you know, um, allowing interaction between industry? I, I still think there is, but, but I, I agree with you that, that um, you really, well, maybe I don't agree with you because maybe we don't agree, but I think that you have to be very cautious with that interaction because on the one hand, you know, you have new medications being brought to market. So if I'm Jordan Keith, a new medication comes out that maybe for a very common, uh, you know, ocular disease that we manage, what do you do to wrap your mind around the clinical utility of that? Um, you know, the red drug rep comes in, here's, here's the new medication, here's the literature, Jordan Keith, we want you to prescribe this. Um, you know, even if it doesn't get past, you know, your, your tech at the front and you don't even meet with them, what, what, what do you do to get to that point? it really can be uncomfortable when a group of people ask you to come out or do this or that. And like, no, I'm going to sit back. I, I, I'm not going to partake, but I, I, what, what, what's changed in me is that when I get, I don't not see reps. I, Mm -hmm. I, 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 I like to hear what's new. I like to hear what's changing. They, they do tell us when their products coming line is, but when I hear things from them or get information from them, I just do my due diligence to look elsewhere and see what else is out there. And to see if there is some evidence that's, that's sourced from an unbiased place. And in new drugs, it's hard to find that. But I, medical history is, is loaded enough with situations where new drugs come to market and they're heavily marketed and pushed to doctors that have dire consequences on public health. Opioids is a perfect example. I think the current that drug is opioids. And, and now that these court orders are coming open and, and we're getting to see behind the curtain, we're seeing that, that those drugs were marketed really inappropriately to doctors for years and years and the side, side effects were downplayed and the upsides were, were pushed. And um, I know that we're not prescribing at least opioids in some states, but... Um, or even in mass. I mean, right, usually right. it, it takes usually, a pretty right. significant... But, we, it, but, but I, it doesn't matter whether what we prescribe addict someone or not. It, it, it's, it's that as physicians and doctors, we hold the power to prescribe things that patients don't have a choice in. Right. And, and that knowledge to make that choice for a patient should be based on sound scientific evidence, not based on marketing. And what, what we prescribe, we like to think that it's based on science because we're trained in science, but the reality is what we prescribe is based way more on science. It's based on clinical experience. It's based on patient demands and it's based on how we're marketed to. And, and so I try to shield myself from it as much as possible because I want my prescribing habits to be rational and things that, that will not only help the patient, but also things that don't harm the patient financially. Um, because one of the things we also take an oath to is to do no harm. And one of the thing, ways we can harm people is by them um, filling a prescription to get them an outcome that is way more expensive than other medications that could have cost them less and give them the same outcome. Mm-hmm. So, you, so um, yeah, so I, I guess if I come back to the other point I, I made is, you know, over, over the last five years, I've tried to make it a point to, to fully disclose, you know, essentially my open payments data. You know, when I, no. when I no. talk now, I like to just show people my open payments data and, um, you know, I was, I was in, um, Las Vegas and I got to see some of the reviews and what was very interesting to me is none of the other speakers, um, did that. You know, they, they basically had their laundry list of, of, uh, you know, the companies that they speak for. My, my talks were solely based on, um, the value of the services that optometrists provide. My four hours were solely based on that. And really, um, not based hardly in any part of products or or um, procedures or companies. 
but I, but because I think I I took the time to point out the specific dollar amounts on my on my open payments data that that um, I've made, um, and it could be I don't know what everybody else's responses were, but there was one question in all the surveys was was this um, was this lecture um, biased in any way? And, you know, largely it, the, the answer was no, they didn't feel like it was biased, but there were, you know, one or two people in every lecture that thought it was biased. And I thought that is crazy that, that I could tell you all the things that I'm, that I am, um, I'm disclosing, not just the companies that I've, you know, that I've received income from, but I'm also disclosing you the specific amounts. And, and, and yet there were one or two people that still felt that that was biased. And I bet that if I hadn't done that at all, and I had just glazed over the, the disclosure slide like most people do, yeah. I bet that I would get less of that. In fact, every time I've, before I started doing that, I can't recall one time where anybody has set, mentioned anything about my biases. And, and it's almost like it hurts you a little bit um, as a speaker is like, man, okay, somebody thinks I'm biased, right? But I would rather them think that because whatever that number is that, that I've made for that particular company made them think I was biased. Right. And that's, that's actually what you want. Right. As a speaker. Right. And that's one thing uh, at the end of my why lunch matters talk, I go through open payments and then encourage people when they're at lectures to open payments them right where they're in the lecture. And of course they do me. And then I say, (laughs) you won't see anything on there except for a couple years ago, somehow they snuck (laughs) one by me. And I literally remember when this was, there was a small meeting and um, amongst our group here. And I actually, I actually didn't know that we were going to be detailed to, but I show up, X companies there, they talked to us for an hour. And I thought, oh, you know, like, I wish I would have known this. They had a catered fancy breakfast to us in a hotel. I actually brought my own banana and coffee at that thing, but they still <laughs> listed me on open payments as accepting, even though I didn't. So. Um, but I encourage people to go to go on there and, and look people up on their reading. And you, you can't you can't tell me that some of those dollar values don't impact their mm. education. It, it's really hard. And, and I, there's a lot of evidence out there to back it up that that you can't tell me that doesn't persuade or affect the education that they're that they're delivering. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it probably does. I mean, I. I. um you know, I, I try to base, you know, when I'm giving education, I try to base all of my, my recommendations um, on evidence. But even at, you know, on PubMed, for example, unless you're really doing research, it's hard to know if that, if that was funded by, so you might find a, a really great, you know, study on something. And unless you know exactly the right questions to ask or the right places to look, you can't know easily if that was funded by industry the, you know, the study that you're citing, it, it's really challenging. It, it, uh, the first page of usually most studies, they tell you who did it and the people involved, but yes, it, it, it can be really challenging. And, um, I, I think there, there are several layers to this that are just, um, that are really discerning. And, and as far as clinical trials go, the other thing that's being pushed for right now that I don't think a lot of people know is that industry might do 10 clinical trials on a drug. Mm-hmm nine of them might show that it didn't have any benefit over placebo or next to its competitor. One of them might have. That's the one that gets published and the other nine we never get to see. And, and, so and you can't know that. You can't know that. And, and another, another layer of this is there's ghostwriting. And that is these industries will write a paper. Oh. And they'll leave the author blank. And then once they find what they're looking for and wording, hmm. they, um, essentially sell that paper to put that, that first, that a big thought leader's name on the paper. And there are a lot of things like this that I don't think people are aware of that if they knew, I think we would all do a little more due diligence on the things that we're picking up to read. Yeah. So when you say paper, are you saying like a, like a peer reviewed paper or you're saying like, um, you know, kind of a journal, like a, a professional journal paper? I think there's both, hmm. and I, I think there are different levels or tiers of impact journals that some of these things are slipped into a little easier. And, and um, 
One of the things that is encouraging is in the last 20 years especially, there's been a big shift in trying to make this, um, to make some of this more come to light. So I, I do think there are stricter guidelines in certain areas. For instance, as a student, you probably remember taking a bag at our meetings and walking up and down the aisles and filling it up full of goodies, pens mm -hmm. and things. Mm -hmm. And because of the research, um, medicine is does and showing how irrationally those objects make us prescribe things hmm. um, they pressured pharmaceuticals own self-regulating ethical board which is called phrma i think and they announced in 2008 that they were going to ban all those little gadgets hmm. so because of um, research that's being done and because of the studies that are being done there are some changes taking place another thing that people might not know um, although it's very small, um, there are two states in the country right now, I still believe that I think there used to be three, I think there's two now that have laws that restrict their doctors and physicians from getting industry payments. Hmm. Minnesota is one of them. So we're one state that, that we can't accept over $10, I believe. There's a limit um, when, when having a meal, for instance. And hmm. Vermont, I think it's zero tolerance. Um, so there are some states that have guidelines in place that, that try to limit some of this financial transaction between industry and doctors. Um, since 2002, there are a number of um, medical associations that govern medical schools that have come out with um, policies on how medical schools should, should shelter the students and residents from some of this industry marketing. And one of the most encouraging things is one of the organizations that really led it from the beginning was the American Medical Student Association. Yeah. They have a website called Just Medicine. And for a while there, they had a scorecard that they listed every medical school in the country based on their conflicts of interest policies. And um, I think one of the things that makes me a little sad about not being in academics anymore, and it's just harder to do now, is I would have loved to have inspired the American Optometric Association to to get more involved with the AMSA and, and create our own little division of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I still think, um, I mean, I still think that's doable. You know, you, you've got, um, you, you know, there, there's people, uh, you know, Bibin Chirian, I had him on the podcast and, and um, you know, his predecessors down the line. I mean, I think if you have the right people you're interacting with, um, you know, people can go down that road and, and there's still doors to be open. Um, it's just going to take a little driving force, of course. And, and, you know, as, as we get older and our foreheads get bigger, you know, it, it's sometimes, um, not as easy to, to be gung ho about those things. Right. Well, the other hard thing is when you, when you're, when you're in this position, there really isn't any industry funding to take you around the country and do this talking. <laughs> it, 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 comes you know, out of, it comes right out of your own pocket. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the crazy part is I think you were telling me that, and, and, you know, so speak, so I don't have anybody that, um, you know, that is, you know, when I, when a state invites me to come, there's now, I, I see this because I think you pointed this out to me probably when I was up in Minnesota a couple of years ago, um, that, uh, that there are, um, when you come for CE, there's the ability sometimes for these guys to come in and have a zero cost to the state association when they come. Yep. And I wasn't aware of that at all. I mean, in fact, yep. since then, I've had, you know, a handful of states that have said, do you have any sponsors? And, yep. I, and I, I would not have known how to answer that question in the past. Um, but but the, tell me about how that works. So I am not a thought leader and a paid <laughs> consultant for many companies. So I don't know exactly how it all works, but I have also been asked that. And now that I am in a chair position where I'm asking speakers, I have encountered several times when I ask someone to speak and they give me their hourly ask per hour lecturing, mm -hmm. I just about fall out of the chair and I respond and say, you know, oh, like this is what we usually pay per hour for doing CE. And then I get a response of, well, my sponsor will pay the rest hmm. for everything else. And, and to your point where you might go to a meeting and then a dinner meeting later on in the day, um, 
for all for for our meetings especially some of these bigger thought leaders industry will pay their flight hotel lodging and pay them really well to speak at that dinner meeting and then the association doesn't have to pay for lodging airfare and everything else so from mm -hmm. from our meeting standpoint and i i would i would suspect this is much bigger with our more national meetings um, part of the draw of having them is that industry helps cover the cost of transportation and lodging mm -hmm. instead of the dues from the association and uh, having to pay for it. Yeah. And yeah, I, I remember so the first time I learned that, I just thought, holy cow, like there, there's just a different word. It, it, one of the, one of the things that comes to mind to me when, and maybe I'm just too naive to be, to be in this talk, and maybe I just don't know how the world works, but <laughs> um, in 2017, there was an editorial released in Ophthalmology about the Sunshine Act. Mm -hmm. And the, head, the, the heading of it simply was, Sunshine has darkened my worldview. Hmm. And so... I feel like the more I dig into this, sometimes you kind of think, man, this, this all just feels a little dirty and it just doesn't seem the way it should be. But um, again, these are things that, that I think the public should know and I think doctors should know and I think patients should know. And I think if, if you were to Google doctor industry conflict of interest, you'd be fine tons of information about oh, yeah. this. Tons and tons and tons. And, and it, it, it's why I'm so passionate about having this CE talk on my list and doing it because I think it's something that needs to be heard. Well, I mean, the, the um, you know, the, these things occur, you know, all the way down the line. I can't imagine that, um, you know, uh, you go to the hospital, for example, right? I'm going to get a little bit gory, but, you know, uh, about six weeks ago, I had a kidney stone and I had to have it removed. And I left a stent, right? They left a stent from my bladder or from my um, kidney to my to my bladder through my ureter, right? I left it for a week. And I, I can't help but think that the urologist, um, maybe he has some stents that he likes and he has a little bit of sway when he goes into the, into the uh, hospital. But there's no doubt that the hospital gets paid, no, gets paid exactly the same, no matter if they put you know, a stent in X that costs them $10 or stent oh. Y that costs them 20 bucks. And they make the decision, maybe there's some input in, their, in the general urologists in Omaha, but maybe there's um, some consensus on the ones they like better and the ones that are easier to use, less complications, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, you know, there are these same sort of things that are going on that sort of you, you referred to as dirty, right? So, um, so there's, I still think there's got to be a way to say, look, industry can allow us to have these stents that are, let's say, um, you know, less likely to cause infection, less likely to, um, you know, uh, slip out or dislodge, whatever, you know, whatever the, the case is. And, um, and, and that they've put the effort in time. If they just put the effort in time in, as you know, to develop something and they don't have somebody else out, out there actually like talking about it and who do they talk to? I mean, there's got to be, I guess, I guess this is the last time I'll push back on it is just that and I'm not really pushing back. I'm just trying to expand on the idea of how, if, if it's the case that in a perfect world, there are no, you know, there's nobody marketing a drug or a, you know, uh, a um, instrument, then because all we do is solely rely on the research, then how is anybody supposed to know about the benefits of it and even question whether or not they're going to incorporate it into their clinical practice. Cause that's, see, that's, I guess that's, um, that's the biggest thing to me is that if, you know, from my standpoint, I, I think you've said this a little bit, but my standpoint is, you know, if I, if I just buried my head in the sand and waited for, you know, waited until I, I had the clinical question to ask PubMed, right. And I, like, I love to do that. I'll, I'll see a patient and be like, I wonder if what the evidence says about this, this is, this is kind of the classic answer that, you know, our, our textbooks and our mentors taught us how to, how to manage these things. But like, what's the evidence for it? That's, that's how I like to figure out, you know, um, what studies show us. But, um, but if it's the case that, that we just say, no, I'm not going to, I can't go down this road. Um, I mean, what's the answer? 
I know you said that he's not accepting other things, but the reality is, is that, you know, you mentioned a lot of other things that were not actually material that could influence your decision. You, you mentioned the way that people look, the time they spend with you, the interest that they have in you, you know, that might not sway you, Jordan Keith, but it might sway somebody else. Yep. Yep. I, I, it's a complex, um, it's a complex situation that I don't know has a perfect answer. Uh, what I would say is the groups of people that study this and, and know exact and see exactly and quantify this in, in trials of how much certain things persuade us call for, um, a pretty clean slate of marketing from industry. Hmm. Um, not necessarily that we can't learn from industry. And, I'm not, and I'm ne- I don't, I've never said that. And I, I think that I know you have it. If, if you're, if you're going to invent a tool or a drug, you know better than probably most people used to should, how it works, how we should use it. But it is how it is marketed in ways that, that, that influence not only with monetary things, but also in statistics that are misleading and in presentations that can be misleading. There has to be a better way that they can educate us about their um, products instead of purely marketing to us. And, I, and, I, and, I, and that's where I wish that there are a group of educators that have called for ways to do this. There are several publications on this. And it falls on silent ears because um, that's not what, if, if you have a product that's not great or inferior, the evidence won't propel it to be a blockbuster drug. Marketing will, hmm. but the evidence won't. And, and if something is really superior to everything else we have, if something's like off the charts superior from everything else we have, you wouldn't have to market it very hard. We just right. use it. But if something's not really superior to everything that we have, and it's just maybe a slit, sliver better, or maybe even just equivalent, or maybe even a little bit worse, that needs to be marketed really heavily in order for you to, to make money off of it. And, and so I, I don't know if I have the perfect answer for how all this happens. I think anything that I say is going to sound so extreme based on the way our healthcare system set up now. But I think most people that would agree that are studying this and looking at it are saying what is in place now influences doctors enough to prescribe so irrationally that it's not only making our patients spend more money on things that, that aren't helping them based mm. on things that are already existing, but it's also making our healthcare system a lot more expensive than it should be. And, and that just, that's not good for, for patient care. It's not good for doctors. And, um, and what I'm not saying is that if, if there's a medication that is more expensive, but if it is, if it's way better than any generic or anything else, we should be prescribing it. Yep. But I, I think you see this a lot. And I see this among colleagues too, of prescriptions written for drugs. It's just like, gosh, there's a generic for that. That's yeah. really inexpensive. Yeah. Get them to the same level. And, um, you can't help but wonder what was the last meal they had. Or what's the last dinner they had, or who's the last person that they got mm. information from? Yeah. So, okay, um, I'm going to be respectful of your time, Jordan. That actually kind of parlays me into another conversation about that I've had on the podcast quite a few times about private equity, mm. and um, and we may maybe I'll have you back on and we can talk about that again sometime because I think that there's the potential that some of that could impact the way that we interact with our patients, and that's really. The thing I want to explore as far as that's concerned, I think I haven't really hit that yet on the podcast, but, um, but I think one of the ways that, you know, even though I almost completely agree with you, <laughs> a lot of these things, uh, and, 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 the, and the reality is, is that um, I know that you have evidence on your side. So there's a lot of, so I, I don't have a lot of other pushback than, uh, other than to say that, you know, there's got to be some kind of work around, but maybe there isn't. But um, let's say that the way that, that we make this known to more people is everybody gets to experience my favorite uh, lecture I've ever attended, uh, Why Lunch Matters. So how do they get in contact with you? Um, uh, tell us kind of the details and, and, um, and how do they bring you to their, to your sta- to their state? Well, as, as you know, Chris, and I know you're passionate about education. I'm really passionate about education. I, um, 
it's sometimes crazy to look at your, your, your vacation list and see how many t- days you took off to work. Yeah. But when you love it, it doesn't feel like work. And, that, and, and this is one of those talks and a, a lot of my lectures I love to do, but this one is so unique. Um, I would love to do this if, if, um, if anyone would love me to do this at their state association or I'd love to come to an optometry school and do it to a students or mm-hmm. um, I, I, you, can get a, you can get a hold of me at my email address, jordanfkeith at gmail.com. And that's the, probably the best way to, or you can look me up on social media, send me a direct message. Or, Great. Great. Awesome. I'll, I'll, put a, I'll put some links in the show notes uh, so people can, can reach out to you. And, um, and then actually Jordan, while we're on the line, if you have any of the, um, like if you have at hand, some of the studies that you've cited, if you want to shoot them over to me, I'll keep those in the show notes as well. So people can actually look them up. Sure. Um, that'd be hugely helpful. And, and with that, uh, thanks for being on the podcast, man. It was a ton of fun. I I'm a fan of the podcast. I think what you're doing is great. I've learned a lot just listening to some of the other people. And I hope that this is, uh, something that's unique to your listeners. Yes, it it definitely is, definitely is. Yeah.